Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Commandancy of the Alamo, February 24th, 1836. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world... I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot. And our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country, victory or death. These are the written words of Lieutenant Colonel Commandant William Travis, one of the nearly 200 people besieged within the Alamo in present-day San Antonio, Texas. It is day two of the fort's defense. Eleven more and the battle will be done. All within the fort will have died, trapped and killed by a Mexican army, determined to snuff out this flame in what will soon become a fiery struggle for Texan independence. Hello, glad to have you. I'm Don Wildman, and this is American History Hit. As big as Texas is, and boy is it big, and its history is rich, and its football teams are great, usually. It's odd that one three-word adage about a single structure from a long time ago so proudly epitomizes the spirit, determination, and identity of the Lone Star State. Remember the Alamo. This well-trod phrase refers to a terribly violent 13-day military standoff that happened in 1836 when a couple hundred Texan revolutionaries, among them legendary names like Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett, stood their ground against a Mexican army of thousands and lost. Big. But as happens, this was a defeat that morphed into victory, at least from the broader perspective of Texan history. And today, we'll find out why. What was the Alamo? What were the two sides battling about, and what did it all mean down the years for Texas, Mexico, and the United States? 
For this fundamental stuff, we're in the company of a native-born, multi-generational Texan, Colby Lanham, senior researcher and historian at the Alamo in San Antonio. Colby, nice to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Oh, good. The Alamo, first quick check on the internet, Spanish word for cottonwood, right? What exactly was the Alamo? Yeah, that's correct. The Alamo begins its life as a Spanish mission. There were five of them in total in the city. The first one being the Alamo, what was then called Mission San Antonio de Valero. And those missions had the distinct purpose of populating early San Antonio. Mm -hmm. They're using the indigenous population, bringing them in, hoping to convert them to Spanish subjects and Catholicism in hopes that they can build the population of early Texas. Once those missions serve their purpose, you now have a town and that town needs to be protected. So the mission... San Antonio de Valero slowly transformed into what we know today as the Alamo. How long had the Spanish been interested in, it was called Tejas, right? T-E-J-A-S. Yeah, that's correct. This is the outermost fringe or frontier of New Spain for a very long time. It was uncharted territory. Starting in the 1500s, the Spanish start making expeditions into this area, and the city itself was founded in 1718. What was so unique about this location? I mean, in all the vastness of Texas, the future city of San Antonio, as you've said, why does the Alamo matter here? What's the strategic importance? Strategic importance is multifaceted, but primarily the water. The waterways that course through downtown San Antonio today uh, would have meandered in the same area as they did when the Spanish pushed through. One of them writes in their journal that there are enough people and enough water to sustain a village. So the Spanish see that. They don't get enough credit for the geologists that they were. They knew as they walked through this area where the water was going to be, they followed it right to the source. And lo and behold, there's already people here for tens of thousands of years. Sure. From that point on, Spain lays its claim uh, to this area of Texas, and they build several highways, six of them to be exact, the El Camino de Real, which stretches through the modern-day state of Texas. Those highways culminate right in front of the Alamo. So we like to jokingly say all roads lead to the Alamo. <laughs> so the people that populated this region... What was the demographic? Who were they? They're primarily indigenous people of early Texas, and they're an amalgamation of individuals from several different tribes and bands, commonly referred to under a united bander, a banner of Cohilatecas. That was just, it was a large group of indigenous people in this area. So when it becomes part of New Spain, are there a lot of future Mexicans moving up there? I mean, what kind of migration from down south came? You know, what ends up taking place is that those indigenous people are brought into the missions themselves. And when they're going through this conversion process, they're intermarrying into the Spanish families. They're having children, and those, in some respects, are the Mexican people of today. I see. Interesting. That's who populates San Antonio. So when the Alamo, this fabled moment in history, happens, we're in the year 1836. So at this point, the Spanish have controlled all of New Spain for upwards of 400 years. When this event happens, the context is really important. We're at the tail end of a complicated era where monarchy is being replaced by republics all over the world. This brings on revolutions, the American Revolution, French, Mexicans against the Spanish, followed by the Ecuadorans, which really surprised me. This leads to the Spanish-American War eventually, 1898. But where does the Alamo and this part of the revolution fit? The Alamo is really the powder keg that kicks everything off for the Texas Revolution, which is a short-lived revolution, less than a year. Mm -hmm. But there's one small skirmish in the town of Gonzales. There are several other battles that lead up to the Battle of Bejar, which is a battle for the town. And the Alamo is kind of this peak of the arch. And when the battle takes place, it spurs on a lot of people to join the revolutionary cause, uh, culminating eventually into the final battle of the revolution. It's always been tricky for me, and I want to emphasize for the audience that this is part of a larger struggle. We think of it singularly as the Texan Revolution, but 
it's this whole thing that's going on between what becomes Mexico and the Spanish Empire, which is in a slow state of disillusion. But this sits there as this really famous event that kind of, as you say, kicks off a powder keg kind of thing for the rest of it, for what happens. So let's talk about that. We're at the end of 11 years of conflict. The political machinations of Mexico have a lot to do with why this takes place. Texas itself, as you say, there's a native population there, but there's also this migratory thing happening. These Americans are coming from the southern states over this open border into what they think of as potential land that they can live on. Meanwhile, there's a whole political turmoil happening in Mexico. Let's focus on that for a moment. Tell me how that is boiling up. The Mexican people won their independence in 1821 from Spain. And that is a very pivotal moment in Mexican history. Uh, they are governing themselves. They form a democratic republic, very similar to the United States. And they ratify and draft a constitution in 1824. That guarantees the Mexican people their rights. They're living under a government and an entity very similar to what their uh, northern neighbor lives under. Uh, Americans shared some of the same values and principles and rights that the Mexican people are now enjoying. And so this hard-fought struggle, two previous revolutions that had failed, this third one successful, the Mexican people are getting on their feet, they're establishing their government. Texas was just the northernmost Mexican state. It was a province up north, and it's populated, like you said, immigrants from the United States and Europe, but also by native Mexican-born people. And this revolution begins to brew down south. There's a lot of instability. And the time that we'll have four presidents in the United States, the Mexican people will have over 20 Wow. So if you can imagine having 20 presidents in a 12-year span, uh, it's a pretty terrifying idea, or a little more than that. The Mexican people end up in a revolt. And as you mentioned, it's important to put this in context, because when we talk about it today, we say the Texas Revolution, mm -hmm. but really part of a much larger Mexican revolution that spills into Texas, and Texas is brought into the fold. Right. You only hear about the Texan side, because Texas was the only Mexican state that was successful in its revolution. Yeah, exactly. So what brings the battle to the Alamo? How does it end up there? Because there's a number of skirmishes all over the place that are won generally by the Texans. And I should clarify this. I see it written as Texian. Is that the more proper pronunciation? Yeah, it's one that Texans today are not familiar with at all. But <laughs> back then it would have been Texians. Texian. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. And really, Tejano is a word used by the Mexican government and the people of Texas in 1836 to identify anyone of any color, race, creed, anyone living in Texas at the time, everyone were Tejanos. Is it fair to think of this as any kind of event that leads to the Mexican-American war down the line, which is, you know, the 1840s? It certainly has its place in that history because the Alamo spurs on this greater movement and eventually the revolution is won partly because of what takes place at the Alamo. That means that Texas becomes a nation for nearly 10 years. And yeah. so that spurs on the event that'll be the Mexican war. So I want to talk about the famous battle and then from that conversation, we can broaden it out and into the legacy of this sort of thing. During the previous, as you say, decade, there had been already a lot of turmoil. And even more immediately, there were already skirmishes around. The Texians were doing very well. They were fighting off the Mexican army up there. Then something changes and Santa Ana enters the picture, right? A lot of people point out the Texans are 5-0 and oh, starting in <laughs> 1835. But what really is taking place is the Mexican army that's out here doesn't have a ton of men. They don't have a lot of supplies. And mostly they're being told, do not incite a revolution. Yeah. So yeah. when the Mexican army under Castaneda, a young lieutenant, leaves the Alamo to go and retrieve this famous come and take it cannon, he arrives there with the idea, if they start shooting, run. Like, don't, don't engage them. Leave the area. Don't start a revolution. And that's what happens. And when Castaneda and his men follow the orders of the general above them, 
the Texans like, yeah, we won, you know, and really it's kind of like, well, they left, they follow their orders. Mm. But yeah, the Texans do fight a series of battles after that that are pretty bloody. I mean, the, the battle for the town itself, the battle of Bihar, as San Antonio was then known, uh, that's a five-day, very, very ferocious, hand-to-hand, room-to-room battle. Yeah, bayonets involved. It's big time. Oh, yeah. And why is it happening here? Well, partly because in March of the previous year, the Mexican government passes the Militia Reduction Act, which not only when Santana comes to power, he not only disbands the Constitution of 1824, he consolidates all the local and state governments into a centralized system underneath him in Mexico City, basically taking away the people's autonomy. Yeah. And taking away the firearms, you could have one gun for every 500 men. And that meant that all the guns needed to be centralized in one location. And San Antonio or the Alamo was the location that all that stuff ends up at. So it's a gravitational pull of its own. In a way, it it has some vague similarities to, you know, the federalist versus, you know, states' rights arguments of the United States. This always happens in, in republics. And so Mexico is going through its own version of that right now. And Santa Ana is the one who wants a much more centralized leadership. He also passes policies which are going to play out in a fateful way. This is absolutely a true battle between federalists and centralists. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the best way to put it. People who believed in the federalist constitution were demanding it be reinstated and that Santa Ana step out of power. That's what they wanted initially. Those are the demands of not only the people of lower Mexico, but also here in Texas. They're fairly progressive policies, though, that get passed under Santa Ana, right? And they completely fly in the face of what's going on in Texas, at least for the Americans who are there. Yeah, I would say some of them are progressive in the sense that centralizing firearms and things of that nature might be seen as progressive. It's the reduction of the state rights and individual rights that really set everyone off. There were very few Mexican citizens, I'd say the overwhelming majority, who were not willing to trade a tyrant in Spain for one in their own backyard. They're, they're not willing to do that. How does slavery fit into this? So slavery is an issue that, of course, is being back and forth and battled in the United States. It's happening elsewhere in Mexico. The Mexican people are somewhat split on the idea. There are some Mexican states that want to retain the institution for a short time. Some want to retain it for long term. It is legal in Mexico. There's a lot of information out there today that would say that is illegal hmm. And that Santana made it illegal, and that is not the case. Oh, interesting. Definitely what I read, so I'm one of those. Yeah, yeah. There is a decree that is passed under a Mexican president, and he is actually using extraordinary powers with a threat of invasion from Spain to pass several laws. And one of them is the outlaw of chattel or institutional slavery. And that lasts for about eight months, and the Mexican government uh, vetoes that and removes that policy. And so slavery is still allowed when the revolution breaks out, and it actually isn't formally outlawed until 1837. So February 1836, this becomes a siege. Where did the Texan forces come from that they end up holding up at the Alamo? Well, the prelude to the Battle of the Alamo is the Battle of Bihar, and there are already several hundred men gathered in the town when the Texans are victorious against General Martin Perfecto de Cos of the Mexican army. Mexican army leaves San Antonio and Texas, and the Texans leave behind a handful of men to hold the town and the fort, thinking the Mexican army will be back in the spring. Unfortunately for them, Santana shows up just a few months later on February 23rd. That handful of men run inside the Alamo, and they hold the fort. We should spend a little time on Santa Ana. I'm curious about this guy. What was he like? Is history kind to him? You know, it depends on whose history we're talking about. The Mexican idea of Santa Ana He's not well-liked, and it's not just because of what happens at the Alamo. It's the fact that he is the president, dictator, or general of Mexico close to a dozen times. Mm. And the Mexican people have their fill of him over a span of about 50 years. He ends up being exiled, right? 
He does. He's exiled, I believe, to Cuba. Yeah. And then the Mexican War is about to break out. Sure. And sure. the American government goes and they talk to him to try to get him to go to Mexico and do kind of a peace talks. And when he gets there, he actually incites the war further and leads Mexico in the Mexican War. Yeah, he's a character. Exactly. He's one of those major figures of Mexico that you always hear about in the movies, but Americans don't really understand who he is. We'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. While you're listening, make sure you never miss another episode by clicking like and follow. And while you're at it, please share this episode with a friend or family member. You're our best means for building our audience, and we are most grateful for the help. Thank you so much. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So let's talk about the siege. It starts February 23rd, lasts until March 6th, 1836. Begins over a cannon, basically. You already mentioned this. They go to retrieve the cannon. They're not successful. That cannon will eventually be used in the Battle of Behar. And the Alamo ends up with 23 functioning cannons within the walls. There are several that are unmounted. but The majority of them are mounted on carriages, on the walls. And it makes it one of the most heavily fortified places west of the Mississippi River in that time period. Tell me the campus of this. I mean, it can't just be that one building, right? Yeah. You know, today when you come downtown, it's a sprawling metropolitan area. But during this period, there were several buildings and it was a four and a half acre compound. Very large. You've got a cathedral. I mean, this is a mission. So it's just like all those places. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to fight from various fronts of this campus, I suppose. Way out of balance. You've got a huge Mexican army of literally thousands coming for what is famously just a few hundred Texans. It's a cockamamie idea. That's what makes it so famous, isn't it? Some historians and even generals in the Mexican army at the time are telling Santana to bypass some of these key towns. Santa Ana, again, though, is the crossroads for all things military and political. It's not only a place they have to take, because if they want to hold the town, you have to hold the fort. If you want to hold the fort, you have to have the town. They go hand in hand. So it's a vital trade route. And that's why the Mexican army is willing to dig their heels in here and, and fight a battle. 
because of the cannon that they had, they were able to make a serious battle out of this. Take me through the timeline of this battle, the siege, really. This goes for almost two weeks, 13 days. But I imagine there's peaks and valleys to this. Can you take me through the timeline? Yeah, sure. So the Mexican army, they march a grueling march northward. They march through a blizzard, a mountain range to get here. They arrive in San Antonio on February 23rd. The Texian garrison under James Bowie and William Barrett Travis fire a cannon shot in defiance of that army as they march into town. In response, the Mexican army raises a blood red flag of no quarter, meaning that if the Texans were to surrender, they would still be put to the sword. They would be executed. So the Mexican army slowly envelops the Alamo on all sides, building fortifications and artillery emplacements to bombard the fort. The Texans over that 12-day period are trying to get reinforcements in. They get 32 men from the town of Gonzales, Texas, to come and reinforce the garrison. That brings the total number to about 189 men. And, you know, the artillery is a very important part of this story. It is part of the reason why the Mexican Army is here. But it's important to note that the 18-pounder, for instance, the largest caliber cannon inside the Alamos garrison, would take about 9 to 12 men to properly load, fire, and put back into battery. If you only have 189 men, you have 23 cannons, and you have four and a half acres of walls, you do the math on that, you're going to need about 500 to 700 men to hold this fort. Wow, interesting. And they have nowhere close to that. No. I mean, there's women and children are also in this fort, right? Yeah. Contrary to modern times, whenever a soldier goes off to war, you leave your family and children behind. But in long campaigns like this, it was not uncommon for soldiers to carry with them their wives and children. And unfortunately for the Mexican army on that long trek, some of them lose their wives and kids Mm -hmm. on the way up here. They die of hypothermia and other things. And so when I say it's a grueling, excruciating march for the Mexican army, it truly is a terrible affair. And the Texans are the same way. They bring their family, some of them inside the Alamo, about 15 to 20 women and children are hiding among the defenders. I toss out this idea of artillery as if it's, you know, something easy. How the heck did they get that much artillery out there in the middle of nowhere? I mean, they have a lot of weaponry. I just don't understand how it ends up there. Yeah, you know, that is such a fascinating topic, and I could talk for hours on that. I won't. I'll spare you. (laughs) But the artillery itself is brought in over a 200-year-plus span as it's being brought in by Spain and then Mexico. A lot of these cannons are out on the high seas, and they're dropped off at different ports. It's a huge undertaking. These are monstrous cannons. The 18-pounder, for instance, weighs 3,000-plus pounds. You need about 8 to 12 horses or uh, draft animals to pull that, and then you'd have another wagon full of supplies to shoot at. And so the fact that the Mexican Army was able to get that much artillery in the Spanish before them and, of course, the Texans later, it's a mammoth task. And I can't imagine that many of those Texans had expertise in shooting these things. Well, yeah, there were some Texans who had fought in the War of 1812 and had experience in artillery. Some of them had the benefit of drilling and practicing beforehand. Luckily for them, the cannons are loaded in a very similar manner as the firearms of the day. They're all loaded from the muzzle. And so there was somewhat of a learning curve, but a lot of those men had experience. But there's aiming it. You know, there's understanding how much powder it needs. There's taking care of the powder. There's all that sort of stuff. That's right. It's amazing to me that the people in those days had this. There are very famous participants in this army. Most famously is Davy Crockett, who I remember as a child. Fess Parker played him on the TV show. I could sing the, the song, but I'm not sure we could get the rights. Oh, what the hell? I'll do it anyway. Davy, Davy Crockett. King of the Wild Frontier, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I loved that show. 
I had a coonskin cap that I used to wear as a child. <laughs> he was a big hero. Until I started doing some reading later in life, did not understand how he got to Texas. Yeah. God, David Crockett is one of those just massive characters in our story. And not just Texas, but in American history. He grows up the son of a uh, American Revolutionary War veteran, uh, one of the uh, Kings Mountain men. He has a really rough upbringing as well. Mm -hmm. His father was not very kind to him, abusive and an alcoholic. And David Crockett runs away in his preteens from home, doesn't have more than roughly six months of education in his lifetime. This is a unique time period in American history. We had won the revolution, the buildup to the War of 1812, which David Crockett will serve honorably in. And America is still looking for this identity, this idea of what we are as a people. And David Crockett came to fit that. And part of the way he's able to do it is by looking at the common man, which was being largely ignored by the government at that time and the wealthy elite. Despite his lack of education, after his military service, the War of 1812, he runs for justice of the peace and ends up winning a seat in Congress. Wow. Yeah. And it's just a powerful story. And instead of going to these huge gatherings to speak on a podium with a nice, you know, expensive suit like his competitors, he would show up dressed as a common man and stand on top of a tree stump and just talk to people. Yeah. And they fell in love with that. What was his interest in Texas? Did he just come out for land or what? You know, he loses his fourth bid in Congress. He did something that was very unpopular at the time, and that was trying to fight for the rights of the individual to include indigenous people. And he voted against Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act, which would become what we know as a forced migration of uh, indigenous peoples from the American South, the Lower South, and uh, the Trail of Tears. Yeah. And when he votes against that, it costs him his seat. And he's famous for speaking to his constituents and saying, that you may all go to hell and I'll go to Texas. Texas wow. was a place where he could start fresh and start new. He's in his 50s by the time he gets to Texas. This is a man who's sort of a very mature individual. Yeah, that's it. I mean, he's in his early 50s and, you know, he's starting fresh. It's an incredible leap of faith that he's taking. So tell me about Jim Bowie. Yeah, so James Bowie is a very interesting character. Definitely a man of his time. Born in Logan County, Kentucky to a very wealthy planting family. Great education. There's kind of this myth that surrounds this era of the individuals who lived in it, that they were uneducated, kind of bumbling hicks, if you will. And the true fact of the matter is that some of these men had a lot of education. James Bowie spoke Latin. He spoke French. He spoke Spanish. And so him and his brother were both trained in that. They go down to Louisiana and he gets into a pretty famous knife fight down there that'll solidify his fame as a knife fighter forever despite that being the only knife fight he got in in his entire life. But he gets the knife named after him as a result, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These large knives that look almost like short swords have been around since the middle, late Middle Ages. Well, there's a song for that, too. The Bowie Nut. No, it isn't. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> I was about to say, that's one I have not heard. <laughs> All right, let's get into this battle. It's vicious what happens. I mean, the battle itself, but the aftermath as well. I mean, I suppose after a lengthy siege, it had gone on for more than a week at that point, there's a final battle to the death, right? Yeah, you have this great buildup of 12 days of siege warfare where the Texans are being heavily bombarded on all sides with not just solid shot cannonballs, but hollow one called howitzer rounds, which would explode 14 feet above your head and rain down hot shrapnel on top of you. It's a nasty affair. At what point do they do the final attack? On the morning of March 6th, pre-dawn hours, uh, roughly 6 o'clock or so in the morning, the Mexican army uh, begins to slowly creep up to the outer edges of the fort. By that point, the Texans had been exhausted from 12 days of siege, and the Mexican army makes their way up to the outer edges of the fort, and they find the men who are supposed to be pulling guard duty on the Texian side, and those men are bayoneted and killed in their sleep. 
The Mexican army gets up to the walls and they begin screaming, Viva Santana, Viva Mexico, and the battle is on. I mean, this is where we see all the famous murals of Texans just pointing their muskets straight down the walls to shoot these guys that are climbing right up. I mean, it is close hand-to-hand battle here. Yeah, it's some of the most vicious combat. The combat of this era is the reason why later on down the road in the First and Second World War, we start making rules as to how we can engage each other on the field of battle. I can't stress to the listeners enough how brutal this stuff was. By daybreak... Most of those defenders are dead, right? That's correct. Within 30 to 90 minutes, the entire fort has fallen. All the walls are breached except for one, a small palisade wooden wall that would be manned by some of the men from Tennessee and possibly David Crockett. And there would be a full envelopment of the uh, compound. And there is a story that exists and is probably pretty accurate that five or six Texians are captured after the battle as prisoners of war. And they are summarily executed by Santana and his army. It had been a policy to take no prisoners that Santa Ana passed or ordered. Was that a result of the previous failures? That is a result of the Tornell Decree. That's given down to Santana. You know, and Santana is demonized for the killing of Texans during the revolution, but he's really following orders. The Tornell Decree saw the Texians as pirates, not as Mm -hmm. enemy combatants on the field of battle, like another sovereign nation. They did not want to give them that autonomy. So they're seen as pirates and therefore pirates are put to the sword. So what's the death toll inside the Alamo? We have done extensive research on that question, and we arrive at the number of 189 Texians killed. It could be a little bit higher than that. We have 189 confirmed individuals, and then the Mexican army is going to lose 400 to 600 killed or wounded at the battle. Wow. That's a remarkable difference in numbers. It's incredible to me that so many of the attackers would have died. It was required that they go straight in with bayonets at that point. There was no other way to do it. You got to remember, you're doing this in the dark. And the Mexican army was filled with conscripts from the Yucatan, these indigenous Maya people who were being used as cannon fodder and being pressed against the North Wall in particular and led to their death. And a lot of those men were killed. And in the darkness, in the smoke that envelops the battlefield, a lot of the Mexican army are accidentally shooting each other. It is complete and utter chaos. Wow. What happens to Davy Crockett? So this is a famous question we get all the time. How did David Crockett die? We have two ideas, and I will not pick one or the other. I'm just going to give both of them to you. One, that David Crockett is killed in the battle, just like any other Texian defender. His body is found after the fact by two individuals who say they saw his body lying outside the church. Next to him was his peculiar cap. The other is that he might have been one of those five to six individuals who's captured after the battle unarmed, and then executed. Mm -hmm. We will never know the truth of that. I don't think, at least in my lifetime, I don't think we'll find the answer. Well, they didn't bury the bodies. They just burned them up, right? That's correct. So the popular way of dealing with the enemy dead, especially when you have 400 to 600 of your own men to take care of, was to strip them of their clothing, place them in funeral pyres, and burn them. Mm. That's exactly what happens to the Texans. Have those remains been found archaeologically? So about a year later, a man by the name of Juan Seguin, who was actually part of the Alamo garrison during the 12-day siege, left to go get help and was told he could not return by General Sam Houston. He comes back a year later and he claims to have gone to the funeral pyres, found some of the remains of his fallen comrades and put them inside the San Fernando Cathedral about eight blocks from the Alamo today. Has that been proven or is that uh, speculated? That has not been proven. There's enough evidence to suggest that that part happened. In 1936, during the centennial, there's a lot of celebrating about, you know, what it is to be a Texan. 
And some of the remains are dug up in the area where once again was supposedly buried those inside the church, and they're put in a big sarcophagus. There is some doubt as to whose remains those might be. Gotcha. Understandably. Well, this would just be a sad story of miserable defeat and pain and torment, except that it leads to victory, as I said in the opening. So tell me how events play out as a result of the Alamo within this time frame. Yeah, so the Mexican army is, uh, defeats the uh, Texians, as I said, about 30 to 90 minutes. They reoccupy the fort, and Santana and his army will move throughout Texas. There's another defeat, a resounding defeat of Texians under James Walker Fannin at the Battle of Coleta Creek, modern-day Goliad area of Texas. And those men are captured, then eventually marched out and executed. So the Texans are dealt two defining blows in the late part of this revolution. But those defeats become rallying calls and people grab their weapons. They join the cause and everything kind of comes to a head outside of modern day Houston, a swampy area. of What we now know as Buffalo Bayou and the Battle of San Jacinto takes place on February 21st, 1836. And the Texians win that. How does that uh, lead to the success of the Texan Revolution? Well, as they're attacking, the battle begins. The Texans are screaming at the top of their lungs, remember the Alamo, remember Goliad. That victory, basically Santana is captured and he's given sort of an ultimatum. You know, you can either die here today or you can give up Texas. And he signs over Texas and allows us to become our own nation. Yeah, it's a really interesting formation of a country and a uh, what would eventually be a, a republic. And it just happened so quickly, less than a year, that revolution took place. And I forget, how long did that republic stand? It stands nearly 10 years. Wow, really? At one point, the, the Texans choose to become part of the United States, yes? Yeah, almost immediately after the revolution, working to try to be annexed by the United States. And the presidents at the time did not want to do that because they were fearing it would cause a war with Mexico. Under James K. Polk, it actually takes place. We become the 28th state in 1845, and it does exactly what the previous administrations had thought. It causes a war with Mexico. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is another episode of American history, which people can listen to. We did some time ago, the story of the Mexican-American War, and it was a fascinating story that directly ties into this one. So it's a good one-two punch that you're going to get there. This is a a huge symbol for obvious reasons. You're the only state in the union with this kind of story. I mean, there's lots of state stories that are interesting, but uh, the fact that you are your own country in Texas really goes far in explaining a lot even today, you know, in terms of the identity of the state, the pride of the state. Oh, yeah. The football teams, as I said. My goodness. Yeah. You know, I think that people, when you look at Texans, we're very loud. Uh, we're very proud. We're always everywhere, flaunting our flags and our gear and everything else. I remind visitors that this was not that long ago. When you really think about it, my ancestors were both at San Jacinto, my sixth great grandfather and his two brothers. They fought that battle. And it, it really is not that far removed from us. In fact, Sam Houston's daughter, she actually dies in a car accident and her body lies in state inside the Alamo. These are modern times we're we're discussing here. Colby Lanham, thank you for joining us. You are the senior researcher and historian at the Alamo. I want to tell people that you are originally from Mule Shoe, Texas, which I just love that name, Mule Shoe. That's right. You have your deep ties to the Lone Star State. Your ancestors fought in the Texas Revolution. Uh, You have your own podcast, am I right? People should look it up. Yeah, the Alamo podcast, it just kicked off some really great episodes. If you've got time, check those out. They're a lot of fun. They're very interesting. Where can they find them? They can find them on our website, pretty much every large streaming platform, Apple, you name it, we're on there. So look for us. They're fascinating. Check it out. Thealamo.org. Even better, go see the Alamo yourself. It's a fascinating stop. Thanks a lot, Colby. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Have a good one.
Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes, dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies, to powerful political movements, to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great. But you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.